Certainly, when it comes to kind of the bottom line of Chinese foreign policies, pretty much everything has an eye on maintaining party control. It is the week of February 16th, and welcome to episode 118 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. I'm Lester Munson, your host. Peter Martin is a defense policy and intelligence reporter for Bloomberg Business and author of China's Civilian Army. The Making of Wolf Warrior Diplomacy, which tracks China's transformation from an isolated and impoverished communist nation to a global superpower from the unique lens of its diplomats, often known as China's wolf warriors. Today's episode will feature a deep dive on Peter's book and the aggressive geopolitical drama that has encompassed China's rapid growth on the world stage. Peter, thanks for coming on the podcast. Before we dive into the book, and by the way, I loved the book, and I think it's one of the most important foreign policy books to come out in quite a while. Great perspective on a bunch of interesting issues. But before we dive into that, I want to ask you about, as a writer, the things that you did to write this book. When did you do it? How did you do it? How long did it take? I'd love to hear your about your methods. Yeah, sure. Um, so, I mean, I guess it was mainly sort of a, a labor of love in the early mornings, uh, weekends and evenings. Um, so a matter of just um, plugging away at it a little bit every single day for about four years. And, you know, I, I guess the, the source base, like, you know, obviously I was working as a journalist in Beijing at the time. And so uh, I've made as much use as I could of that, talking to Chinese officials, to um, to foreign diplomats and and trying to kind of prize out as much information as I could that way. But but really the most important source was this collection of about 100 Chinese language memoirs written by former PRC diplomats. And it's kind of a, a big bias of mine that, you know, if you're willing to persevere with Chinese sources, even though they're, they're heavily censored and they're filtered through the lens of the party state, there's still a, there's still a ton of information there for people who are patient enough to deal with it. And so that was kind of the main source space. So take us back, uh, if you will, to the origins of modern Chinese diplomacy back to the end of World War II, the end of the Chinese Civil War, and the creation of this uh, civilian army of diplomats. How did all of this begin? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess in, in 1949, you know, China, China didn't really have any diplomats to speak of. The, this new communist government had come to power. It had kicked out any of the nationalist governments, diplomats who had stayed behind because they felt like these people were too ideologically impure to represent the new government. And they, they faced this kind of strange challenge where on the one hand, they desperately needed to build ties with the outside world um, and to establish the communists as the legitimate rulers of China. But on the other hand, you know, the, the Communist Party had spent the last couple of decades being chased around the country, leaving this kind of underground armed uh, existence and, and was very much aware of threats to its ability to continue ruling China, both from inside the country and outside. And so in order to kind of square that circle, China's first foreign minister or communist China's first foreign minister, Zhou Enlai, came up with this idea that, that Chinese diplomats should think and act like the People's Liberation Army in civilian clothing. So they should model their behavior on the, the fighting force that had brought the communists um, to power. And what he meant by that primarily was that they should show an incredible amount of discipline when they 
you know, to, to orders and to, to follow the lead of the Communist Party kind of unfailingly, but also that they should come up with a bunch of really quite distinctive behaviours in order to make sure that they never overstep the bounds of their authority. So, for example, they, they used this buddy system where they travelled around in pairs, and then they, which is still in use today, to make sure that they kind of kept tabs on each other and that no secrets were leaked. Your description of this is really terrific and kind of these uh, Spartan conditions that Chinese diplomats put themselves in in order to adhere to these kind of cultural norms for the for the foreign ministry. Did you find that this methodology helped China do better diplomacy or was it more for the purposes of being congruent with the political activities back home? I, it's a good question. I, I mean, I think it may have helped initially. Uh, I kind of, I kind of think of the the very dogmatic approach that they took as a little bit like the mission statement that a tech startup puts on a wall when they hire their first few employees. Um, like no one really knows what they're doing, but that little statement on the wall helps to kind of remind them um, what what that how they're supposed to be spending their time. And so, so that kind of rigidity might have actually helped in the early days. Um, but I think, as you said, the the main purpose really then and over time has been to to make sure that no one steps out of line with you know what's politically correct and that foreign policy really follows very very closely the the wishes and whims of um, whoever's at the top in China from your really deep dive into all of this in your understanding how do Chinese diplomats think of themselves do they think of themselves as agents of the Chinese people and the Chinese nation or do they think of themselves as agents of the Chinese Communist Party another great question I mean I think I think the truth is they, they probably think it's it's a mixture of the two and that if you certainly if you were to ask one of them on the record they would say there is no contradiction between the two because the communist party always serves the interests of the, the chinese people um they they do operate within you know the, the communist party has kind of its own bureaucracy and its own particular departments and then there's the separate nominally separate government apparatus and the, the foreign ministry is part of the, the governmental apparatus and, and on, on paper that's kind of separated out from, from the party but of course in practice it's very much subservient to it and so yeah I, I, I guess I guess they would say a mixture certainly when it comes to kind of the, the, the bottom line of Chinese foreign policies um, pretty much everything has an eye on maintaining party control. There's this new term or relatively new term for what China does uh, diplomatically the wolf warrior approach to diplomacy, a very aggressive, forward leaning kind of in your face willingness to be rude and say provocative things in order to advance Chinese foreign policy goals. Is that new or is this an extension of the the stuff you saw in, in these archives going back to, to World War II? Yeah, you know, I was I was kind of surprised um, doing the research to, to find how much of the ways that you know Chinese diplomats behave really has its roots in um, in the past. And you know, I, I talked earlier about how this diplomatic system had been set up with a view to making sure that it was incredibly responsive and disciplined to the, the will of whoever was in charge. And I think that that's meant that, you know, at times when those who are in charge have decided that China needs to, to win friends and to improve its reputation, Chinese diplomats have carried out that mission with incredible 
effectiveness and, and zeal. And at other times when the people in charge have been focused on purging their enemies or, you know, building up cults of personality around themselves or focusing on ideology, Chinese diplomats have tended to run in that direction and prove their loyalty to the people in charge, uh, show that they are, you know, ideologically the real deal, they're on on, on side with whatever the leader is um, doing and, and have kind of put the opinions of, of foreign audiences to the side as they do that. Um, so at, at those kind of times, um, Chinese diplomacy has often been pretty disastrous and sometimes very, very um, aggressive. So, you know, in, in, in 1950, China sent a delegation to the United Nations in New York and this this diplomat called Wu Xiuquan, who had kind of a, a bullet scar across his cheek, delivered this speech, which Time magazine described at the time as two awful hours of rasping vituperation. And in the 1960s, Chinese diplomats uh, were actually expelled from countries, you know, ranging from Kenya to Indonesia for acting in provocative ways. And they, they literally engaged in a, in a fist fight with protesters on the streets of London. And one of them was even pictured wielding an axe uh, in the face of protesters. And so there have been these displays, which now we would call wolf warrior diplomacy uh, for quite a long time. But, uh, you know, they've, they've tended to crop up when domestic politics is kind of pointed in a certain direction. Were you tempted to call the book Rasping Vituperation? It would have been a good title, actually. Maybe I should have done it. Let's talk about uh, Russia and, and the Soviet mm. Union. Of course, China famously had these, seem, at least now they seem crazy ideological battles over communism with the Soviet Union back during the Cold War. It was, it was one of their big challenges. And you spend some time talking about how the foreign ministry handled that diplomacy. Today, of course... China and Russia appear to be working together against mm. the West. Uh, there is this friendship treaty that was renewed last year between uh, China and Russia for another five years, supposedly. How do you see the continuity in that regard for the foreign ministry changing its approach to Russia so dramatically just over a few decades? Yeah, you know, it's it's really been this very sort of emotionally wrought relationship that the two countries have had. And of course, after the Chinese Revolution, the the relationship was incredibly close. Two countries then fell out spectacularly, as you said, in the late 1950s, and they were engaged in these kind of ideological struggles. They started to make nice in the late 1980s. And, you know, through the 90s and the 2000s, there was this kind of gradual and then more and more rapid convergence of interests and, you know, deepening friendship, as, as, as you said. And what's been really interesting in the last few years is that while, you know, there are misgivings on both sides, right? Like, I think there are some misgivings in Beijing about uh, some of the more provocative ways that, that Vladimir Putin handles his foreign policy. And there are misgivings in Moscow about playing, you know, little brother to, to China. But Really, in the last few years, we have seen this this deepening convergence, which has been shown very dramatically in just the last few weeks at the Winter Olympics, where Beijing and, and Moscow delivered this this joint statement, which was really a, a kind of extraordinary uh, statement of kind of mutual support. China talking about how Russia's legitimate you know, uh, interests in, in Eastern Europe needed to be recognized, criticizing NATO expansion. Um, and so, yeah, the, the, the two countries seem to have really teamed up quite closely. Those The, the tensions which have 
played out in the past. Many of them still exist under the surface. But I think as long as um, you know Putin and Xi are in power, then that that convergence is likely to continue and is going to pose. Uh, increasing problems and increasing headaches for American policymakers. One of the other phenomena you described in the book is this concept of hide and bide, where China will simply not get along with countries that they know in the future there's going to be some conflict, such as the United States. Can you can you kind of describe this this diplomatic hide and bide concept? Yeah, I mean, it was really an incredibly successful diplomatic strategy, which which China employed in the aftermath of the Tiananmen massacre. Obviously, you know, China had kind of taken on this international pariah status in the aftermath of the the massacre, and and at the same time, it wanted to focus its energies on building up its economy. So in order to do that, it needed a friendly international environment. It needed some of the international kind of sanctions which had been leveled on it after the massacre removed. And it also needed to avoid getting into needless spats with neighbors or superpowers in order to kind of focus its its energies on its economy. And of course, also kind of implicit as a part of that was that if they succeeded in making the economy grow larger and larger, China might become more and more threatening to its neighbors. And so there was also an element of, of making sure that as it did so, there weren't additional costs of Beijing's rise wasn't made um, more difficult as a, as, as a result. And so the, the way that they approached that was to keep military spending low relative to um, to economic growth. Well, of course, you know, modernizing their military, but but keeping it absolute numbers relatively low to shelve territorial disputes with, with China's neighbors, uh, to improve the country's reputation with a kind of soft power push around the world, and to try and manage its relationship with the United States and reassure the US that, that China was on a path that would mean it could it could kind of peacefully and smoothly integrate with um, with the global system, uh, both economically and, and politically. And that that lasted a long time until around 2008-9 when things kind of started to veer off course. All right. I hope you don't feel like I'm setting you up here. But given the apparent closeness between Russia and China now, and given China's kind of history of pursuing this deceptive approach to its neighbors and to other other great powers, is it possible that China is pursuing a, a version of the hide and bide strategy with Russia today? Because there seems to me there's some some obvious discrepancies in the relationship. Russia is a fading power over the long term. China is clearly on the rise. Russia has all of these natural resources that China is going to need at some point. If you were, mm. if you are China, you've got to be looking with a certain amount of lust and um, acquisitiveness towards Siberia and other places in Russia? Is it possible that there's something else going on in that relationship? You know, I, I think none of us really know kind of Xi Jinping's inner thoughts, but I can... I can kind of give my, my, my take on what's going on. I think that Putin provides really useful cover for Beijing in, in many ways. His approach to territorial disputes, of course, is even more provocative than, than China's. And it benefits Beijing whenever the US is distracted, either in Europe or the Middle East, and, and takes its, its site off of the um, kind of Pacific arena and China's, China's backyard. So I think that that, that is very useful. I think that um, China finds it very useful to have kind of a partner in international institutions, places like the UN, where it can oppose the US agenda. And and I think it also finds it useful to have a, a partner, you know, 
another authoritarian state which disagrees with visions of universal human rights and all those kind of things so i think that that's where a lot of the the shared interest comes from i don't i don't know how much kind of territorial um acquisitiveness there is but but definitely uh you know putin is kind of a, a useful partner in providing beijing cover and, and and in that sense russia is you know kind of a much bigger version of some of the other partner states that Beijing has that provide that kind of cover. You know, I think of Hungary in the European Union helping China to block um, criticisms um, in, in that institution, Cambodia playing the same role in ASEAN, and Pakistan acting as a thorn in India's side in South Asia, and, and Russia is able to do that on a kind of global level. So I guess that's, that's the primary way I think of that relationship. Let me uh, ask you about Taiwan and the provocative moves by China against the island. You know, we're told that an invasion could be plausible by 2025, that Xi Jinping for his legacy must uh, do something about the Taiwan issue. I, I have to tell you, as someone who's who's worked in Washington in or near foreign policy for decades, it seems like this is always happening, that there's always some sort of tension over Taiwan. How much of it is a real issue for China and how much of it is merely leadership in China kind of using Taiwan as an issue to kind of push their opponents away? In other words, is it an artificial crisis that is being manufactured for domestic political consumption? I think that the, the, I mean, the desire to reunify is very, very real. And there's an impatience that goes with it. You know, Xi Jinping in general is impatient about achieving his goals, domestic and foreign, and he's willing to take um, risks in order to do it. You know, as, as you'll know, if you if you speak to people in Washington who, you know, think about military, the military balance, it's pretty easy to make a case kind of saying it would be crazy for Xi to do this. Amphibious landings are incredibly difficult. China's military has come a long, long way, but it would still be very, very difficult for China to take the island militarily. But, you know, no one, as I said before, no one really knows Xi Jinping's ultimate intentions. And that's that's creating quite a lot of distress. And I, I think, um, you know, China's leaders would probably still quite like to find a non-military wave, quote unquote, you know, reunifying the, the two territories. And you know, one of the things that they're doing with these kind of provocative actions is, is trying to scare Taiwan into not doing anything like declaring independence or, or taking steps like that. Yeah, of course, the, the, the problem in the process is that they make Taiwanese people more and more sure of their uh, Taiwanese identity and less and less willing to reunify peacefully. So uh, at some point, this will come to a head. But, but barring some kind of massive surprise, it, it, shouldn't, it shouldn't happen in the short term. Going back to your book, you described this amazing incident in uh, Papua New Guinea at, a, at an ASEAN summit in which Chinese diplomats almost physically try to bully the, uh, the host foreign ministry into changing the, the statement coming out of the summit. Can you, can you describe that for our listeners and then, and then talk about whether that's the kind of thing that really is effective in today's world? Yeah, I mean, it, it, that was one of a, a whole series of, of incidents. In this case, they were squabbling over a joint statement at the, you know, the APEC grouping of, of Asian leaders China felt like there was going to be some language which was critical of it that had been inserted by the Trump administration and they its diplomats felt under 
massive pressure to get that language removed. And when they uh, they found it difficult to uh, kind of achieve that goal through the usual channels, a, a small group of them burst in through the door of um, you know Papua New Guinea's foreign minister in order to um, to kind of impress on him the the urgency of what they were doing. And you know, o- officials from Papua New Guinea afterwards said that they felt like they had been bullied and, and pushed around. Um, China denied that you know, the Chinese government denied that the incident had ever taken place but you know what i think that is is a reflection of this you know i think a lot of people would look at that incident and think well who reads the statements coming out of the apec <laughs> uh you know a, a meeting like it's not this is this is not that important the stakes are not that high but for chinese diplomats it feels um very, very different. You know, the foreign ministry has had this motto since its inception. There is no such thing as a small thing or no such thing as a trivial matter in diplomacy. Uh, and under Xi Jinping, that's especially true. You know, he has been very forthright about the central role he expects China to play in the world, the, the, the fact that China deserves attention, the fact that it will never, you know, give in to American bullying. And I think the diplomats uh, on the front line that day in, in, in PNG probably really felt the need to make sure that nothing went wrong because there's so much pressure bearing down on them from the Chinese system. Peter, if you were the British foreign minister or the American secretary of state, and you, uh, with your really kind of profound knowledge of how China conducts itself, how would you exploit that diplomatically? Is there is there a way for the West to kind of use this really radical approach to, to diplomacy against China? I mean, I in, in truth, I think that, you know, China's actions have, have kind of played into the hands of, of quite a lot of Western governments without them having to do very much at all. For a while in the early kind of 2010s, there was a bit of a mismatch between China's very assertive behavior on the ground and the relatively reassuring language that Chinese diplomats used. And, uh, you know, that, that could make it difficult in some cases for for people who wanted to signal the alarm about China to do so. Chinese diplomats have, have kind of made that task much, much easier by putting a human face on Beijing's assertiveness. And I don't know that there's um, there's a lot that Western diplomats and politicians really need to do. Um, you can just look at these kind of public diatribes or the, the kind of, you know, spreading conspiracy theories on Twitter, storming out of international meetings, this kind of behavior really does over time create a backlash. I think sometimes Chinese diplomats win tactical victories by putting people under this kind of tremendous pressure. But the long term, I think, is a, you know, we have a kind of strategic failure because um, the backlash just grows and grows. What's your sense of the way China has been handling the challenge of the Winter Olympics, which are which are going on right now? I think they last for a few more days. You know, it's it kind of started off uh, before the Olympics even started. There was this whole issue with Peng Shui, the, the women's tennis star, who had made some accusations against a senior Chinese official. Then she disappeared for a while. Suddenly, she's being trotted out again under very controlled circumstances. That rolled into a lot of scrutiny from everyone in the world on. Uh, Beijing during the Olympics, how will it conduct itself? Uh, they seem to be, you know, they're forcing athletes to put these apps on their phones that may be monitoring them and controlling for certain words. Do you think this is 
playing well? Do you, do you see this wolf warrior diplomacy or this civilian army at work here in the way China is handling the Olympics? I mean, I think, I think again, there's kind of a um, you know, tr- tremendous degree of pressure for, for nothing to go wrong and to present a smooth and um, Im- Im- impressive and respectable image for China um, to the outside world. Um, which is played out in in Chinese diplomats kind of shouting down, shooting down any criticisms of China, its human rights record, and and that kind of stuff. And so, I guess in that sense, yeah, it is a it is a kind of continuation of of wolf warrior diplomacy. Do you see any change in the offing for China? Any kind of more mature approach to dealing with other countries? It kind of the descriptions of these terrible incidents kind of beg the question. Mm-hmm. You know, when will I hate to sound pejorative. When will China act like a real country, like a mature country that's self-confident and and conduct itself in an appropriate way in these international fora? Do you see that happen? You know, it's, it's interesting because in the past, China has had these periods of um, very assertive diplomacy and then has gone through subsequent periods of kind of recalibration. You know, after the 1960s, China and the Nixon administration shocked the world with this this kind of making nice of the two countries and they you know they changed the course of the the cold war after tiananmen as i as i mentioned before there was this kind of sustained period of of external charm offensive by china as it sought to um to improve its image and so i think a lot of long-term china watchers have been pretty shocked that that hasn't happened in this case there's you know, if you look at Pew polling, if you look at the the statements of governments from from Europe, Asia, and and beyond, it's very clear that there is this kind of very widespread backlash towards China, and yet the the kind of assertiveness seems to continue um, apace. And you know, it's it's worth pointing out kind of along the way that. I think a lot of Chinese diplomats are acutely aware that this is going on. And these are these are sophisticated people who have got degrees from overseas universities and spent many decades interacting with the countries that they're posted to. And they know that this stuff is counterproductive. But at the moment, their incentives are to continue acting in that way. And I think, you know, partly that's because Xi Jinping likes this kind of assertive approach, and he he thinks that that's an appropriate style. And his his writ, of course, um, runs very large in in Chinese politics at the moment. And I I think the other kind of factor that goes along with that is that there is a widespread belief in Beijing that the the U.S.'s global prestige has been um, profoundly weakened over the last decade plus you know since the since the financial crisis but also with the rise of of populism and the questioning of of some of the US's overseas um commitments and and alliances and and also this view that there is a kind of malaise in in Europe and and with some of America's top partners and i think the belief many people in beijing is that even if this backlash continues so will china's rise and eventually the world is going to need to accept China on China's terms, and that that perhaps the backlash is worth bearing as long as the kind of constellation of, of forces continues to to work in Beijing's favour. Um, and until China's leaders are dissuaded of that notion, 
I think we're unlikely to see any real um, recalibration of, of China's foreign policy. Peter, great stuff. The book is called China's Civilian Army. I highly recommend it. It's a terrific read. Super well done. Really one of the best foreign policy books I've read really in a very long time. Oh, thank is, it coming you. Out in, is it coming out in paperback? Uh, I guess eventually it will. Um, I don't know. It just The, the uh, audiobooks edition just came out. Um, and uh, I, I guess eventually it'll have, there'll, there'll be a paperback coming out, but I don't know about the timeline. All right. Well, folks, don't wait. Go ahead and buy the hardback <laughs> audiobook. Thanks a lot, Peter. Terrific. Thank you so much. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnatsec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Maeve Cronin for producing. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national securities fault lines.